great prairie to catch the line in it, although we're not on a fishing trip. Something like we're always on a mission with you or for you. Thank you very, very much. That was very thoughtful. <clears throat> One of my sons said to me this week, said, Dad, this Sunday you better be really good. I thought I was always pretty good. But he said, this Sunday, you've got to be really good. I said, why is that? He said, this is Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> is it Super Bowl Sunday? Who's playing? The who? Raiders and the 49ers. The Ravens. Okay. When, all right. When we got married... My wife, Harriet, wrote in our wedding vows that I would not follow sports. Never done that. So, when's the game on? 3 o'clock? 12 o'clock? Which part of the country do you live in? And all. Okay, we'll be finished before then. Okay, just to let you know. And may your team win. Uh, whatever, <laughs> whatever that is. Um, okay, let's come back to the Bible. <coughs> Jesus was a master communicator. Uh, he talked in language and pictures that people could just grasp and understand. He got his point. He used stories from everyday life. And um, we need to remember his world, though, was a very, very different world from our world. His world was a rural world. So he talked about sheep and fields and um, farmers and all kinds of stuff. Some years ago, I had a little book um, called God is for Real Men. A pastor called Carl Burke, who worked amongst gangs in New York. And he was trying to communicate some of the stories and pictures of Jesus. Um, and they had no idea. They had not a clue. They had never seen sheep. They know anything about farms. And so Carl Burke was trying to teach them. Remember the story about the man who had 100 sheep, lost one, 99 sheep, and goes out to find the one that's lost. Remember that story? Okay, good. Um, and they just did not register at all. And so he rewrote the story, which was published in his little book, God is for Real Man, that imagine you had a, you owned a used car lot, and you had a hundred cars in it. And one night you went along just checking the cars, and you got the 96, 97, 99. Not there. Somebody stole a car. And so you try to go find it. And the light went on for these kids. In, out of New York. They understood that. He rewrote the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is like my probation officer. He said, how do you get there? Well, as he began to talk to these kids, he said, you know, who loves you and cares for you and make sure you've got food and clothing, whatever, like your, like your father. I don't know who my father is. Never seen him. He's gone for years. Well, like your mother, who loves you and clothes you and, you know, my mother deals drugs and she's a prostitute in New York and um, hmm. So who is the one person who has looked after you and had showed you in the smallest bit of care in your life? For many of these, do you know who it was? Their probation officer. So he rewrote the 23rd Psalm. Got a lot of trouble for that. But anyway, see what he's trying to do? He's trying to communicate in line with that people would understand. If Jesus lived and talked today in a city of Vancouver, uh, the pictures he used would be very, very different. I have a feeling he would talk about traffic. And housing, sky train. He would say, look at the mountains, the North Shore Mountains, look at the sea. And he would go from there. Jesus, what we call parables. If you don't know that word, parable. The idea is like the, the mathematical term, parallel. 
It's an idea is thrown alongside another idea. Alongside something very ordinary, Jesus throws alongside that a spiritual truth. And so from this picture of everyday life, Jesus draws another meaning. The Jewish teachers taught in parables. So people were familiar with that kind of idea. And parables, we might say, help us to take abstract spiritual truth and make it into an everyday picture. Perhaps most important, parables speak to different people in different kinds of ways. Matthew chapter 13, if you have a Bible this morning, please use it or look it up in whatever you want to do. Matthew chapter 13, verse 11. Jesus talks, we're doing this series on the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about the secrets of the kingdom. And he says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you and not to them. Whoever has, has will be given more and he who is abundant. Whoever does not have, things will be taken away from them. That's why I speak in parables. Though he says, those seeing, they don't see. Though hearing, they don't hear. Now to us, the word means something we want to hide from people. We don't want them to know. But in the Bible, the word secret or the word mystery is often the opposite of that. The secrets of the kingdom means some truth has been hidden, but now it's made clear. But you know, not everybody will be able to get it. So that's a kingdom secret. Something we need to understand is that parables are not allegories. An allegory is a story where we look for meaning in every detail, not in parables. The, the usual, uh, our usual mistake is we try to find meaning in every little thing. We need to accept some things are just part of the story. They're not allegories. If you've read, and I'm sure you have, or if you haven't read, um, C.S. Lewis is The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. And that is an allegory. It means that there's all kinds of levels of meanings, and you, you figure out who Aslan is, and who Lucy is, and who Susan is. You see their point. Each parable is really designed to teach one key spiritual truth. That's what we're going to do this morning. What's the one truth? Matthew chapter 13 again, if you've still got that. Look with me at verse 18. Going to read through to 23. And read one of these great stories of Jesus. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears about the, the message about the kingdom... Got that, and does not understand. The evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. They're all excited. But since they've got no root, no, we would say, no depth in their life, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they, fall, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth chokes the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word. That means the word of God, the word of the kingdom, and un- understands it. This is the one, the person who produces a crop yielding 160, 30 times what was sown. Now there's one lesson in that, and I'm going to suggest to you this morning, the lesson in this story of Jesus is all about what we'll call receptivity. How do we receive what the Word of God is? Now some of you may have been taught that this parable is the idea that it's the different way that people make an initial response to the Gospel. In other words, Some people hear it, but their mind is hard, and it just falls off. Some people start well, but their enthusiasm fades. They become a Christian when they're 15, 16, 17. When it's time to get to 27, it's gone. Others find the gospel just is crowded out. 
That's fine. But can I suggest to you this morning that that does not go far enough. We lose the central meaning of the parable. They say, well, you know, one day I did receive Jesus into my life. It was maybe a youth camp or whatever it was. So I guess my life is like the good style and that's the end of the matter. You need to realize that the primary message of this parable is about the kingdom. Listen to how anyone hears, says Jesus, the message of the kingdom. Remember what the kingdom is. The kingdom is the reign and the rule of God in our lives. Not just as a one-time event at a youth camp or whatever, but as an ongoing reality. The whole of the Christian life is to be one of continual progressive revelation and response. In other words, we are always living in the truth of this parable all the time. I am somewhere in this parable right now. Some part of my life is in this parable about receptivity to God and to the message of the kingdom, and so are you. You are in this parable right now. And you might, as you look at your life, have to say, there's areas in the soil of my life that really have to change. Because what does it say to us about receptivity? It says this, first of all, the closed mind denies the potential for change. Maybe Jesus glanced around and sees how over the years people walked across the field. They always took the same path. Over time, the productive soil in that field had become dry and hard packed. Thousands and thousands of feet walked upon it and they really made it like concrete. And alongside this very simple picture of path, Jesus throws a spiritual truth. He says, you know what? In life, there are people like that. Their minds have become so hard in their lives that they're close to the life-changing power of the gospel. You know, we say that about people. You know, their minds are made up. Don't confuse them with the facts. And even if you try to present the truth to them, they're not going to get it. Their minds are closed. Can I also tell you there are Christians like that? Their minds are so fixed and so hardened against God-transforming ideas that it fails to penetrate their thinking. They're closed to the truth of the kingdom. That's a spiritual tragedy. And it describes the most deadly of the spiritual diseases, which is called hardening of the heart. Uh, some years ago, about 25 years ago, in fact, I went to my doctor one day whom I hardly ever knew. I never, I'm a typical guy, you know, you don't go to see doctors or whatever, I'm fine. So I went to the doctor one day with, um, my leg had, and if you've, any, if you've got any experience as a doctor or nurse, you'll understand this right away. Um, I went with my leg, which from the knee down was pure white. And I had been not like that way for about five days. Never got better. And my doctor looked at me and said, hmm, Okay. I made a phone call and he sent me down the hall to a specialist, cardiovascular surgeon, who kind of looked at me and my leg all bent went, hmm, I may make a phone call. And went out and came back and said, uh, Dr. Khan, um, they're waiting for you at the Jubilee Hospital across the road. So you like to take your briefcase and you go across there. And um, he said, I have to tell you that you are very seriously ill. And um, you're in hospital tonight. And I said, um, that's not going to work. I said, because um, I preach um, twice on Sunday, I have a wedding on Saturday, and then I'm off to speak at a conference in the next week. 
And this old doctor, he'd met guys like me before. He smiled and he said, You belong to me now. Oh. And he said, I have to tell you that tonight I probably will have to amputate your leg. And I went, Oh. I had a very serious form of atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. I went to surgery that night. Before I went in, I signed an order that if they had to, they could amputate my leg. And this old cardiovascular surgeon whom I got to know worked some extra hours on me in OR and managed to save my leg, for which I have been very grateful. But I'll be honest with you, when I woke up out of surgery and sort of slowly came to out of the fog of anesthetic or whatever. It was a long time before I had the courage to look down under the blankets and see whether I had one leg or two. That was a scary moment for me. But there was something more serious than that. It's not the hardening of the arteries. It's the hardening of the heart. That was the disease that Pharaoh suffered from in Egypt. It described minds that are so fixed, attitudes that are set, nothing new from God is able to penetrate the hard and flexible crust of our lives. Sometimes people will say to me, do you believe God can heal today? I say, yes, he can. He can do, frankly, whatever he wants. Are you open to that? But there's also what I call churches with closed minds. You know, the seven last words of the church, we've never done it that way before. And that usually means we're not going to do it that way now. The life-changing power of the Spirit is just not at work in them. There are churches that suffer from spiritual atherosclerosis. Their arteries are clogged with stuff. Here are some of the danger warning signs of that. When we become smug and complacent and think we've arrived. That's a danger sign. Another one is when we protect tradition without any good reason. Or when we perpetuate past programs when they need a decent burial. When the horse dies, just bury it. Okay? Or when we have a cynical attitude about something new and we will not open our minds to what we believe God might be able to do in our church. Remember that Israel was led out of Egypt not by a book of rules and bylaws, but by a cloud and a pillar of fire moving forward. The closed mind is the enemy of the spirit who moves across creation and calls life out of death and light out of darkness. God is always in the business of transformation. Changing people, changing lives, changing churches. That is the word of the kingdom if we will receive it properly. The closed mind doesn't see that. Jesus moves us on. The shallow heart lacks stamina. He says, the one who received the seed fell in rocky places is like the man or woman, who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since it has no root, it's got no depth. It lasts only a short time. When trouble, persecution comes because of the word, he quickly falls away. Um, For most of us, starting is great fun. We've got lots of enthusiasm and lots of ideas. i got to tell you, I am great and I love starting projects around the house. I don't really like finishing projects around the house. So I love starting projects around the house. And right now i got a huge big project on. And the next thing I've got to do is go out and buy baseboard. 
you understand? Baseboards when you put it around the walls. Because that will finish it. I love starting. I don't have the same enthusiasm about finishing. Little by little, in your life or my life, the enthusiasm starts to fade. And we slip into the routine of mediocrity. Jesus talks about two things that can help that. One is prayer. You know, things just start to pile up. We have the pressure of life pressing in upon us. Or suddenly, secondly, there's persecution, he says, because of the word. When our lives lack depth, we quickly find out we may not have the stamina that is all the way to the finish line. So Harriet's saying to me, when are we going to go buy the baseboard? Starting easy. Making it all the way to the fishing line is hard. But the Christian life is not a hundred meter race. It's not a sprint. It's a long haul. And we need the stamina, folks, to get us all the way to the finishing line. One of the great passages in the scriptures, we don't have time to read it this morning, is a chapter in Hebrews called chapter 11. And it's the stories of people who faced enormous adversity in their lives, but who hung on, who did not quit, whose lives to death. Go home this afternoon and may encourage you um, before the Super Bowl or at halftime or whatever, read the chapter today. It tells us that one of the most important qualities we can develop in our lives is endurance. It is perseverance. It's modeled for us by Jesus. And it says about Jesus, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin which so easily entangled us, and let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before, he endured, he persevered all the way through to the cross, scorned his shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. That's the shallow life. We don't want to be there. But then Jesus moves us on. He says, the overcrowded life lacks impact. His picture is this. The one who received the seed fell among the thorns. is like the man or woman who hears the word. And the, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke it out. And they make it unfruitful. The spiritual life, it, it has to be lived out in the rough and tumble of the world. We'll deal with that a few Sundays from now. But often the good seed of the kingdom, remember what that is. It's making God a priority. Putting God first. That has to compete with other pressures. It has to fight for a time. Now most of us are like amateur jugglers. We got too many things up in the air. Sooner or later we may find, we may find that the whole thing just comes crashing down around us. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is to fight for our attention against worry, against materialism, against time. But when our lives are fragmented and pulled in a thousand different directions, when we rush madly from one day to the next and from one project into another, we do not have the unifying clarity of the kingdom as a lens through which everything can be filtered and decisions made. Our lives lose impact. We may have lots of activity going on, but not much productivity. We feel the pain and the poverty at times of being involved in too many things. But achieving so little. We throw up our hands and we just, I stop the world, I want to get off. Ever feel like that? I have a sense that the kingdom is not willing to be competitive. It is strong. But it will not bully us for attention. It will not just, it will, it will not fight it allows itself to be ignored, even choked out. 
but knowing we will pay a very heavy price for our overcrowded lives. Richard Foster, Quaker, writes, We are too busy only because we want to be too busy. We could cut out a great deal of our activity without seriously affecting our productivity. He says, let us reject the modern success image of the person on the go, whose workload is double what any person can possibly accomplish. He says, let us reject the delusions of grandeur that we think we are the only ones who can save the world. If we refuse to do that voluntarily, men and women, we may find one day that our own bodies will force us to do it as our overworked hearts force us to slow down and exhausted minds cannot take any more without breaking. That's what I found out one night in hospital. They found out I have a small heart defect that triggered all of these problems. The cardiologist came to me and he said, Dr. Khan, you need to know that that defect in your heart saved your life. God was saying to me in a very serious way, after I tuned Harry out and all kinds of other people, God was saying, Tom, you have to slow down. You have to slow down. It's an old, old hymn we don't sing anymore. Most congregations wouldn't even but the opening line is, Dear Lord and Father of mankind, forgive our foolish ways. And it goes on and say, Take from our souls the strain and stress, and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of your peace. Is your life too busy? Is your diary too full? You can't get any more things in your iPod? It's that way because you want it to be that way. You say, I can't slow down. One day, you might not have a choice. I've been there. The last picture Jesus draws is the receptive life. Remember this parable is about, about receptivity. It's being productive. But he says, the one who receives the, the seed fell in good ground as the man or woman who hears the word understands it, produces a crop a hundred and sixty or thirty fold. You know, all of us want our lives to be meaningful. We want to make a difference. We do not want to get to the end of, journey and, at the, end of the journey and say, you know what? That was a waste of time. Final idea. How do you get good soil to be good? Does it start like that? Probably not. It may be like that hard ground needs to be broken up. Just like those mines that are closed. Or, it may be shallow ground, full of rocks, and needed to be made in thorns and weeds, needed to be pulled out of all that stuff. That's how ground is reclaimed. This is how lives are reclaimed and cleaned for God to work in them. Now, the normal way we think about this parable is this, that everything starts as hard ground, category, closed mines, lives that are shallow, and mature, and eventually we become good soil. I mean, I think that's fine. But can I suggest to you, um, that's not always the case, and some people it works the opposite way. When you become a Christian, maybe at 15, 16, 17, and that's wonderful if you do. As new Christians, we start with minds and hearts that are open and eager. And they're like that good soil. They're eager for God. We're going to change our world. We want to change our school and our classroom. We were open to learn whatever God wants us to do. We're enthusiastic to grow and to learn and to change. 
And then, little by little, our minds become closed with cynicism or skepticism. Maybe some incident in the church jades our spiritual optimism. And so we begin to withdraw and we pull back. Or just our lives just settle into dull routine. Busyness, because we're maybe in university or into our first job or whatever it is, busyness creeps in like weeds slowly choking out the seed of the kingdom. And so our creativity dries up. Mediocrity moves in and chokes the imagination that we once had. You see the point. What started as good soil can become choked and shallow and hard. Lines from again an old hymn. It asks, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Let me ask you honestly this morning. Was there a time in your past when you were more excited about your faith than you are right now? But to be honest, yeah, you're here on Sunday morning, and I know that. But things really have just settled into a dull routine. Was there a time when you enjoyed being creative and you would come up with new ideas for ministry or whatever, but that has been replaced with mediocrity? Frankly, you would get more involved in some, some kingdom stuff. We'll talk about that again a couple of weeks from now. But you know what? You've just got too busy. Or was there something happened? Maybe in a church like this. That just kind of soured your enthusiasm. And you just said to yourself, eh, I'm not going to touch anymore. Here's the question for you and for me this morning. I told you, you're in this parable somewhere. So am I. The question is, are you prepared to do anything about it today? Because you can start to change the soil of your life right now. The work of grace in us, the work of God's grace in us, is to reverse the damage and the hardness that modern life causes. Grace is like an excavator that lifts out the rocks and boulders out of our lives, that lifts out mediocrity. Love is like a shovel that pushes its way through the weeds, digging them out inch by inch to allow the kingdom of God to be sown. Hope is like a plow that breaks up the hard places within us, allowing creativity to be planted and joy to be sown, opening our minds and our hearts again to the light and to the laughter of God and to the good seed of His kingdom. You are somewhere in this parable right now. You are somewhere. So am I. When God starts to do that work in us, we will discover the secrets of the kingdom. Let's come back. I invite you to stand, please. So you see, this story of Jesus is not just about how people first received the gospel. It's about how we go on in the work of the kingdom. And how the work of the kingdom works in us. So as we sing this song, a lovely song, Lord, I lost this voice. Let me come to you. Lost the words. Sorry. It's how the power of God's love.
and change your life and mine. Maybe you're just too busy. Maybe you're hard this morning. As you sing this, can you just say, Lord, would you change this part of my life and come and plant the seed of the kingdom within me?